Hello, and welcome to the More Than Moves podcast, where we explore all the different things that we can do together as an elders quorum beyond helping people move. I'm here today with our fearless leader, Darren Bowman, and uh, looking forward to talking to him a little bit more and better understanding his interests. But before we get into that, I know you're our fearless leader, but there are things to be a little bit scared of in a move. Any fun or kind of crazy moving experiences that come to mind? You know, we talked about a little bit about this before the show began, and I was telling a story about a move that I remember in particular, where we'd gotten everything into the truck. We got the, the fridge, we got the couch, we got all the boxes, everything, but we didn't pile it up to the ceiling. And so we got to the back of the truck and realized we still needed to put more stuff in. And I was always the guy working the inside of the truck, and I was it was it was hot and it was sweaty, and we needed to get the last few items in. So I distinctly remember crawling up the wall of stuff at the back of the truck, just like the picture you use for the podcast, and then climbing over everything that we had already put in and pushing boxes in front of me, trying to fill in that last bit of space inside the truck, uh, sweating, everything else. But we, we filled that truck up to the brim, and I think that was the day I swore off being the guy inside the truck. From now on, I'm the guy outside the truck carrying the boxes. So that's what put Darren into retirement as right. the inside-the-truck Tetris master. I give that job to JD now. JD loves Tetris. Awesome. Well, we know where to go to for that then. Uh, so Darren, I know we know each other pretty well, but not everyone in the quorum probably knows you as well as I do. So can you just give us a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm not born in the Bay Area, but I've lived most of my life in the Bay Area. My dad moved here when I was two. My parent, Both my dad and my mom moved here when I was two to get a degree, a business degree, lived here all my life, went off to BYU, went off on a mission. When I got my degree, I came back here and worked for a few years, went to school, worked again, stayed in the Heritage Oaks Ward the entire time, briefly got booted out of the ward into the Woodland Park Ward, when they uh, and then they rearranged boundaries and I got admitted back into the Cuesta Park Ward. So I was in, uh, I was really in three wards without ever changing houses. It it, uh, it just sort of worked out that way. So I've been here for, in the ward for a long time and have, uh, I work in a business at a company that helps nonprofits save money on unemployment taxes. So absolutely nothing to do with high tech, nothing to do with any of the industries that people think of in Silicon Valley. But it's a job that gives me a chance to exercise executive skills, but also be guaranteed I can be home in time for dinner almost every day. So I, I chose the job for quality of life reasons. And other than that, uh, my wife Kathy and I, we have four kids. They are 22 years old down to 12. So one off at college, one doing college from home, and two still uh, living at home, going to uh, elementary school and high school. And I mean, that's about it. Well, that's a lot. Uh, and what did you study in school, and, and how did you decide to pursue that? So my, my major was an unusual one. Uh, I, I studied classical studies, and classical studies is Greek and Latin languages and a lot of ancient Greek and Roman history. But how I ended up there was, uh, was it was a circuitous route. Uh, I grew up, as I mentioned, I grew up here in Silicon Valley, so I just assumed I was going to be an engineer. Everybody grew up to be an engineer here in Silicon Valley. So I took all the STEM classes in high school. I went off to BYU. I was an electrical engineering major. I went off on my mission. 
And my mission was a really hard time. Uh, and I didn't feel successful as a missionary. And I felt like I ran into a lot of, of for the first time in my life, I ran into a lot of, of, prob, of, I ran into situations that I couldn't conquer just through being hardworking and studious and, and things like that, that there were questions that couldn't be answered about the nature of free agency and stuff like that that, that bothered me. So I went back to BYU and I just wasn't satisfied with engineering anymore as a major because it felt like the, it felt like too cut and dried. Uh, it, it, life was more complicated for me and I wanted something that reflected the complexity of life and engineering didn't seem to have it. So I, uh, I experimented around, took several classes, took a philosophy class. The, uh, the chairman of the philosophy department made some comment about how uh, philosophy majors were all wannabe classics majors. And I said, well, what's a classics major? And so I looked into that and I learned what I told you earlier, that it's Greek and Latin uh, and it was uh, a lot of history. And I said, well, I, I love languages and I love history. And this professor says that it's a tough major and that the, uh, the classics and physics were the two majors that tended to get the highest score on grad school admissions tests and things like that. So maybe I'll try that. So I went into the admission, not the admissions office, I went into the guidance office and told the counselor I was changing my major from electrical engineering to classics. And she looks me dead in the eye and she says, do your parents know about this? I said, no, I haven't told them yet. She said, you better talk to them about this. So my parents were alarmed, uh, concerned. Uh, my dad, the, uh, the physics major, uh, followed by a business degree, was, uh, you know, really wanted to know what my career plan was. I didn't have any clue. I, w I was 22 years old. I just wanted to do something fun. And, uh, but they, they let me do it. Uh, I, I got my degree. I loved my degree. Uh, I still, I think in many ways it, it was a more practical, even, even though it's the least practical degree in the world, it is more practical in some regards because the stuff I learned is timeless if I had learned, if I had gone to computer science, I mean, uh, it would have been timely and useful, but obsolete in 10 years. And some of the stuff I learned about history and about human nature and about how you know, civilizations rise and fall and the, the currents, the political currents between East and West and all that, my, uh, my, they, they've deepened with time rather than become less relevant over time. So I really loved my major. And... How I got into it was pure serendipity. And I guess as part of that, you're probably pretty well read then. And so is reading or books an interest of yours? Yeah, it always has been. Uh, I've, I, I'm, I'm a big reader of fiction, and these days I'm more a listener to nonfiction. I like to listen to podcasts. I like to listen to audiobooks. I've got a lot of the Great Courses audiobooks that I listen to on my phone. Uh, Generally, these days, I listen to uh, lectures on history, linguistics, uh, love languages, and, and the evolution of language over time. I listen to, uh, you've clued me in on a lot of church-related and church leadership-related podcasts that I really enjoy. So there's a lot of things that I, that I read and listen to today that are interests. My, my collection of books... Uh, I've got a lot of church history books. I've got a lot of, of normal ancient history books. Everything from the Roman period on up to the Middle Ages is a special interest of mine. 
as well as a lot of natural science and particularly the kind of science made popular books that uh, that try to make sense of the complexity of life. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is an author that I really enjoy. I've got some books on chemistry made uh, easy to understand that I enjoy. So it, it, anything like that is a, is an interesting book. And right now we're actually sitting in uh, kind of your game room area. You know, there's a lot, there's a whole wall of games, you know, kind of behind us here. And uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about uh, games and, and, and what type of games you're interested in that you like to play with your family. So the, this room that we're sitting in is the, uh, the room that when we were designing this house, this was the room that I was most adamant about wanting to have. Uh, because I, re- reading is a pretty solitary endeavor. I mean, I enjoy talking about the stuff that I read, but the stuff that I read, there aren't that many people that talk about it. So gaming is a way of connecting with people for me that is, uh, that is fun, that I enjoy spending time with people, but it also feeds that need for complexity. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I really like complicated systems, things, things that you read or things that you learn about that you learn a set of rules, but then how those rules interact becomes more and more complicated the more you do it. That, that, that sort of complexity appeals to me, and a lot of the games that are up here represent that. But then at the same time, gaming is also a way to connect with people, which means sometimes the game rules are simple, and it's just a way to spend time around the table together. So there, there's a broad array of games back behind me, ranging from ones that take hours to play and are super complicated. There's one over on the far left that back in the 80s was literally the most complicated board game ever devised by man. It has, it has a rule book two inches thick. Uh, and it, it's a World War II simulation of squad-level combat. Uh, whereas I also have here games that are with rule books that are four pages long, if that, but have surprising strategic depth. So there's... Uh, there's a lot of stuff behind me here that, that that I play depending on who I'm playing with. And and how did you get into games? Did you play a lot of games as a family as you were growing up, or is this something an interest that you developed more as an adult? Or good question. No, my, play, growing up, my family played. Yeah, you know, I would guess I would call it a, a modest amount of games. We, we we played the normal games that uh, that existed in America back in the '80s. So Risk. Um, Clue, things like that. But something happened in the 90s, and, and board game fans call it the, uh, uh, the, the European board game renaissance, where a lot of games got developed starting in Europe and starting in the 90s that were very different from Risk and Monopoly and Clue. Uh, in particular, they didn't have... One of the problems with games like Risk and Monopoly is that pretty soon it's clear who's going to win, but then it takes a long time to actually win. And so it kind of, the game kind of grinds on for a while. This new genre of game, which often gets called Euro games, they typically have a couple of things that are different from the old American games. Usually there's a victory condition that does not involve eliminating every other player. So everybody gets to stay in the game until the end, and there's sort of a, a race to the finish line to achieve the most victory points or some other condition. And then second, usually the competition is less direct. You're not trying to wipe another person out of the game. You are both competing for scarce resources or something like that. 
So the classic Euro game from the 1990s is a game called Settlers of Catan. That was the, the gateway game for a lot of people who got introduced to this new type of game. But since then, there have been a, an amazing proliferation of new game mechanics that uh, have taken gaming in very different directions. Um, I could spout the names of mechanics, but they wouldn't mean anything to you. Um, but they've, uh, they've, they've, it means that there's a lot of varieties of games out there and a lot of refinements of different new game mechanics that means there's always something new and interesting to try. So to give... Uh, Okay, I, I can think of one example. Um, I have a game behind, behind me called Crew. What's fascinating about Crew is that it takes a, a type of game that probably everybody listening to this is familiar with, which is the, the trick-taking card game, hearts or spades or bridge, something like that. But instead of turning it into a competitive uh, game, it turns it into a cooperative game, where everybody who is playing the game has a set of cards in their hand that they can't reveal what they are, but then everybody in the game also has certain objectives that everybody knows. For example, this player needs to capture the red seven. This player needs to capture the blue five. And you need to figure out how to cooperate so that the right person gets the right tricks without communicating anything about what's in your hand. So it, it's, it's a mechanic that's very, that a lot of people know, but it turns it on its head by making it a cooperative puzzle that you're all trying to figure out with, with defined rules about what you can and can't communicate. And, and that sort of uh, innovation fascinates me. In fact, there's a, there's a whole genre of cooperative board games now that didn't exist even 15 years ago. Uh, the, the first one in that game, and pro- in that genre, and probably the uh, probably still the best, frankly, is called Pandemic, ironically enough, right now. But uh, in Pandemic, you play as a team of scientists trying to control four worldwide diseases that are all erupting at the same time that are represented by a proliferation of little colored cubes on a map of the world. And that game is so brilliantly designed so that uh, it it always comes down to the wire. Uh, You know, you win as a team or you lose as a team, and losing as a team stinks, but winning as a team feels great particularly when you win as a team on what would have been the last possible moment of the game. You know, there's uh, only so many turns the game can go, and you lose if you exceed that, and on the last turn you find some way collectively to meet all of your victory objectives and win. And that, that's, a, that's a great feeling. That, that's what board gaming, that, that's the type of board gaming that really appeals to me. And do you have a favorite game at the moment? It, it changes all the time. Uh, Pandemic's still one of my favorites for the cooperative genre. Crew is a favorite when I'm playing with my parents because it's simple enough that they love it. When I'm playing something really meaty that takes hours, I play a game called Gloomhaven with my sons, which is a sort of uh, medieval fantasy people in armor go out and go into dungeons and kill monsters sort of game. Uh, that's also cooperative, but you're playing against the, uh, you're trying to you know, collectively kill all the monsters. Uh, if I'm playing a competitive game, one of the more complicated ones that I enjoy now is called Scythe. Uh, and in Scythe, you're... Well, I won't even go into what you're trying to do, but it, but it's a fun game. Well, it sounds like if we should actually have a forum activity where we can all learn about it and then maybe give it a try. I mean, let's have a game night here at the, the Bowman's or at the church or somewhere and 
uh, let's give this a shot. Or if people who are listening are more into the classics or other types of literature or fiction, it sounds like Darren's your guy for that as well. So let's get moving. Let's give some of this a try. Thank you, Greg.